Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Don't waste your time with explanations. People only hear what they want to hear. Insofar as Paolo Coelho's quote reflects the truth of human behavior, it also reflects the behavior of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. Time and again, Jesus explains to his closest followers that he must fail. He must be judged, treated with contempt, made the least of all, and finally put to death shamefully in the public square. Still, when Jesus tries to explain this, all the disciples hear is what they want to hear. That Jesus is the Lord's Messiah that he is powerful, that he works signs and wonders, and that he will be raised in victory. But of what do the power and victory of Jesus consist? What happens when you talk about the resurrection without the cross? What happens to the disciples in Mark? Those who are called to serve the lowest and the least in God's household change the subject away from the dregs of the teaching to the heights of personal glory. Who, the disciples ask, among their privileged ranks is the greatest? What to do, O Lord, when even divine hyperbole falls short? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 175 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So in previous episodes, Richard and I have made the case that the main reason Jesus doesn't want his disciples to talk about his miracles or to talk about him until after the resurrection is because he does not want anything to take people off target. And the target, the task at hand, is the study of Scripture. Now, Richard had mentioned to me years ago that in the rabbinic tradition, there's a tendency to discourage young men from reading Ezekiel because the symbolism in Ezekiel can be easily misconstrued and confused with popular mysticism, diluting the actual intent and meaning of the prophecy of Ezekiel, which, incidentally, is essential for understanding Mark and is much less exciting than the magical imagery. That's the point. The rabbis themselves, in a way, are saying the same thing Jesus is saying. That if you read Ezekiel and you get excited about the bells and whistles, you're not going to understand what Ezekiel is saying. And so now we come to a section in Mark, beginning with verse 30 in chapter 9, where we're going to have a test, a kind of oral exam, administered by Jesus on the way. And we're going to be given a taste of what happens when men under the age of 25 read Ezekiel. A young person 
reads the first few chapters of Ezekiel, and then they start seeing flying saucers and flying chariots and winged lions, and they start having these visions as if they're there with Ezekiel seeing these wondrous things. However, they were not called like Ezekiel. They were not given the scroll like Ezekiel. And the way that Ezekiel functions, the point of that chariot is so that later on, seven or eight chapters later, God can leave the temple because the people have turned away from God. And here in this passage in Mark, Jesus is talking about strength and weakness. The problem with the crowds is that when they see Jesus perform a miracle, they think, wow, he's even stronger than Caesar. And what Mark is trying to teach is that Caesar is the wrong reference point. It's not about the earthly power and the magic tricks that Jesus is performing. So when Jesus takes aside his disciples, he's always interrupting that thought of how awesome Jesus is and how great Jesus is to say, you don't even understand what awesome and great mean. In Ezekiel, God is presented using symbols that an addressee in the ancient Near East can easily identify with kingly power and with other gods. So in a way, Ezekiel is usurping these symbols, these metaphors, these memes, if you will, in order to present the biblical God in the garment of what you consider powerful. A contemporary example would be to present God flying an F-16 fighter surrounded by American eagles. Now, someone just reading it and getting excited about the imagery is not going to be able to differentiate between the President of the United States or an American general and the Lord of Hosts if all they see is an F-16 fighter and an American Eagle. These are the kinds of symbols Ezekiel uses. Now when you see an F-16 fighter and an American Eagle, you think of victory and the conquering of America's opponents, America's enemies. But if Ezekiel were to use that imagery, it would be to turn it on its head in order to demonstrate the victory of God even over the Americans so that the sword would be turned into the Isaanic plowshare. But if you just come at it and get excited about the F-16, you will never understand the ultimate point, which is that you have to put away the sword because all who live by the sword die by the sword. So here in Mark, Jesus, as you said, is teaching weakness. But what do the disciples hear? From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Again, it's the continuation of this tradition of holding off until the appropriate time as appointed by God the Father. At first this seems a little bit confusing because usually when he's out and about, he likes to be able to teach. But we also have seen that Jesus gets stopped up by the crowds and so when he's afraid a crowd is going to stop him from his teaching mission then that's when he doesn't want people to know about it but also in this passage as we've already alluded to we're going to find out what happens when people hear the teaching and don't understand it we're going to see what kind of damage can be done specifically by his most intimate followers for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So here, 
Nobody hears the part about him being killed. They ignore it. And they jump immediately to, ooh, 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 he's going to rise three days later. The point is, they're still listening with blinders on. Jesus is having to do some remedial education for his disciples because he's already actually been through this. He has to teach them again. We saw that we did that we saw that they didn't get it the first time. That's why he has to teach them again. But the reason why he didn't want crowds in Galilee is because he has a very specific teaching he's trying to give to his disciples and that's about his being delivered and being killed. Notice it says they will kill him and when he has been killed it repeats twice he is going to be killed. He's going to be killed. He's going to be killed. Julius Caesar never talks about, oh, and when we go into battle, I'm going to be killed because that doesn't rally the crowds. He says, we're going to be victorious and I'm going to return and I will show you how strong and victorious I am instead of saying, oh yeah, I'm going to be killed and that's going to be pretty much the end of it. Because Julius Caesar is the son of the gods. And this is what the disciples want. They want a son of the gods or, in this case, they want to make out of the God of Abraham one of the gods and Jesus one of the Caesars. They want God to be super Zeus. They want him to be, like Zeus, just stronger. Now, the problem in Mark is this question of fear. And here we have a moment where Mark is really coming clean with his teaching about fear. Listen to verse 32. But they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. They are afraid of the F-16, and that's why they cannot hear the proclamation of the cross with the resurrection. Because they are afraid of the F-16, they are afraid of the American eagle, they are afraid of the gods and the kings that Ezekiel subdues in this imagery that's presented in the prophetic tradition. Because of that fear, they can't hear the teaching. And this is very dangerous because if you hear the teaching of Jesus and all you're capable of hearing is that he's going to be raised on the third day, you yourself are going to make out of yourself a Caesar. And the way that Jesus is presenting it is that the death will be his victory. There is a resurrection that's tied up with this death, but it's not one without the other. Oh, in spite of the crucifixion, I'll be resurrected. No, they go together because of, thanks to, they all come together. And this contradiction is incomprehensible to the poor disciples who still don't get this. And one of the subtexts we have in Mark is when people don't understand, it's because they don't understand scripture because this was foretold before. And the fact that they tie the disciples' ignorance, they did not understand the statement, and their fear, they were afraid to ask him. On the one hand, they're afraid to ask because they're afraid of the earthly powers, but also afraid because last time they didn't understand something, they got yelled at. Jesus is sick and tired of this, but this is what happens with human beings. I know logically I should be able to understand this. I don't. So I'm just going to continue in my lack of logic and I'm not going to ask because God forbid I look stupid. Now, Jesus just talked about how he's going to be delivered and killed and they're afraid of looking stupid. Why won't they ask? They're afraid to humble themselves even before Jesus in order to learn the correct teaching. This is how far astray their fear has led them. And now we come to this critical point, this moment of grace. Hence the name of the town, Kafarnaum, which means, as you know, the village, the town of grace, which happens to be in Galilee, by the way. Isn't that interesting? It's not within Judea. It's not 
a section of Jerusalem. It's out in Galilee of the Gentiles. They came to Capernaum, Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? So now is the moment of grace. It's the moment of judgment, the moment of being examined. They're being tested. And that is the grace because the test comes before the time. It's like Father Paul Tarazi often says about the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus prays to his Father, asking not to be led to the day of temptation, it's a way of asking God to delay the judgment, to give us as much time as possible before the judgment. And that's what is happening here. By giving the exam, by being difficult and harsh on his students, he's actually showing grace and mercy because if they can have a practice test before the day of temptation when the Lord comes, the day of judgment, then there's hope. As I've said often to folks, you would rather have to deal with a cruel parent or a cruel teacher than have to deal with a cruel stranger on the street. A cruel boss or a cruel police officer. At the end of the barrel of a gun, you would rather your teacher be mean in the final analysis. And that is the meaning of grace. And this is why our culture is spiraling down because we think grace means holding hands. And it's not going to work out for us in the end. Because if we're not willing to take care of each other and to deliver the difficult message and to carry the burden of challenging each other and holding each other accountable and entering into the very difficult, unpleasant spaces that require conflict necessary for light and life, there's no hope. Now, Jesus is in the house. Usually he tries to leave houses. And now he's going into a house. What's going on? He has a very specific corrective message to give to his disciples. And it seems like he's making his disciples responsible first before it goes to the crowds. So he needs to make sure that the disciples are ready for this because as Jesus talks about dying and going away, he has to make sure that his teaching is secure in his disciples so that they can continue to teach. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. There you go. It's hard not to cringe when I read that. This proves that they don't understand, and this demonstrates why Jesus doesn't want them to open their mouth and talk about it or about him or about his miracles because they're going to preach Caesar. They're smart enough not to say, oh, we were discussing who is the greatest. So they know they shouldn't be, but they're still doing it. And that's a thing that's tough. Beforehand, they didn't understand but they knew they should understand, so they were afraid to ask. They were having this conversation, but they knew they shouldn't be having this conversation. And so they're halfway there. Is that good news or is that bad news? I guess it depends if the glass is half full or half empty. Look at how far we've fallen in Mark. In the beginning of Mark, Jesus was sending them out. But over time, he's like, just keep quiet. First, he was like, don't talk about me. Don't talk about my miracles. Now he's just like, don't talk. Don't talk. You don't get it. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all 
and slave of all. And this is the language of Paul in Galatians, very clearly, that your duty is to be a thulos, a slave. Paul is the slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the slave of God the Father. But ultimately, our slavery to Christ, who is the slave of his Father, is practice so that we can be slaves of one another. And these people are talking about who's in charge. Now, the question of who's in charge is a very important question in Paul's letters. And we've talked about it extensively in 1 Corinthians. So I want to be clear, this is not an egalitarian teaching, the way that progressives interpret the New Testament for their purposes. Because you can't be a slave unless there is a master, which means there is a functional master that is incarnate as your neighbor that is established in 1 Corinthians and the household order of the church. But the key is that no matter what your function in the household, you are someone's slave. He's been trying to get across this teaching of weakness and who he is as the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he's trying to show that, like you say, the F-16 isn't the end-all be-all of strength. The one who has true strength in his heart by following the teaching of scripture is the one who's servant to everyone else. And so Jesus is also making the claim, I'm not going to fight back. This is going to happen, and it's not going to be, I'm going to die on the battlefield against Caesar. I'm going to be delivered up and killed. Simply, there's not going to be a battle. There's not going to be a fight. There's no glory in the way that human beings, whether ancient Roman or modern American, understands what glory is. The glory is the opposite of what you think, and Jesus is trying so hard to come up with every idea he can. Yes, I'm going to be resurrected, but the crucifixion is the main thing you have to understand. No, it's not about who is the greatest. And Jesus is pulling out all the stops to try to get this teaching because the human being is corrupted by what they understand to be glory. They're afraid that they won't get that glory. And because they have that fear, they persecute everyone around them because they're afraid they're not going to get the glory they think they deserve. And Jesus says, here's how you get the glory you deserve. Be a slave. And who's your functional master? Everyone else. Yeah, it's a very difficult message. And the way in which he now makes the point in verse 36 is beautiful because he takes this child, which is the symbol of weakness. People, again, People who have been Hellenized, who have been Westernized, whenever Jesus invites a child, speaks of a child, or even talks of scolding a child, and so forth and so on, or a child entering the kingdom, they talk about innocence. But innocence is a non-functional word in Scripture. It has no value because no one is blameless except Christ. There are no innocent children. There are no innocent victims in Scripture. The child is held up in verse 36 because a child has no power taking a child he set him before them and taking him in his arms he said to them whosoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me so he's presenting to you Richard the hierarchy from the least to the greatest the father is the boss 
Jesus is his lieutenant. Paul is the slave of Jesus and the head slave in the household. And you're a slave somewhere in the pecking order. And wherever you fall, if you set yourself above the child, even if you are the head slave in the person of Paul, you failed the test. Here, he just takes a child and he sets him in front of them. In other passages, Jesus says this when the disciples have turned away the children. In this passage, the disciples are not turning away the children. The disciples are having to learn about what strength and weakness are. So it's about receiving a child. This is the Near East. It's not receiving like someone sent him to you. It's receiving. You show that person honor. You receive them. You give them food. You give them drink. There's hospitality. Reception includes all these different elements. It's like the Middle Eastern tradition, ahlan wa sahlan. You are welcoming someone. You are offering everything that you have to them. Dehome in Greek means to welcome. That's exactly what you're saying. You welcome the child. And so... It's easy for the disciples to want honor and want glory in the earthly sense. And so what does that mean? They go around and people applaud when they enter the room and they talk about how great it is that they were able to come and everyone is so excited about offering them honor. Now, for the crowds, of course, it's important for them to give honor to the one who brings the teaching. But for the teacher to go because they want that honor betrays the teaching itself. So rather than talk about the weak receiving the disciples, Jesus has to punch them with this and say, no, you receive the weakest and the least glorious of the people. You have to receive them. And when you receive them, you receive me. And this is what is even more scandalous, that Jesus is equating himself with a child. And Jesus is number two in the pecking order. The father is the boss. Jesus is... The manifestation of the Father's power on earth. Paul is the head slave in that household. And Mark is an intermediary between the addressees of this gospel and Paul. So we're already down in the pecking order, and now we're saying that the number two in the pecking order is on the level of a child. What is Jesus saying about us? That's the rub. And how does one receive the one who sent Jesus? by receiving his word. So Jesus knows that they're ignorant and they're not getting it. They don't understand the teaching. And he says, I will know that you have finally received this teaching into your heart, into your brain, and it's actually functioning once I see that you'll receive these children. Because if you receive these children, I know you're receiving me and the message that I bring through my sacrifice, which I do because I follow the will of the Father. And if you receive me, you're receiving his teaching, his will, and therefore you make yourself the slave of everyone, even the child, which is, of course, unheard of in the Roman Empire because this upturns every Roman understanding of what glory and honor mean. This is why when Pope Francis washes the feet of Muslims on Holy Thursday, he's reflecting the meaning of this teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. The Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.